Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knaxed once again for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. Today, I uh, wel- uh, welcome you to our first episode featuring an international Mohs surgeon as our guest. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Alberto Conde Tabuada, who is the head of dermatology at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Madrid. He's also a Mohs surgeon and consultant at the Hospital Clinico San Carlos and an associate professor of dermatology at the Universidad Complutense in Madrid. Alberto, thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Thomas. Thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to talk to you. So what, what we're going to be talking about today is um, your recent publication. Uh, it's currently ahead of print in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. And it's titled, A Cross-Sectional Study of YouTube Videos on Mohs Surgery, Quality of Content and Sentiment Analysis. And I think that this is a very timely publication. Our lives and medicine are more and more impacting social media and also being affected by social media. And so I think it's very appropriate to start to have some data to learn about how social media and the different social media channels are affecting us. And so, Alberto, what I think we'll do first is sort of talk about YouTube and your paper in uh, general. And I guess I will start by asking you what specifically prompted you to conduct the study with your co-authors? Well, in our daily practice, we receive patients asking for more surgery, and many of them look for the information through the internet. The first author of the paper, Dr. Alvaro Iglesias, is an expert in health-related social networks and artificial intelligence as well. So he designed the study focused on YouTube because YouTube videos have extended their influence beyond entertainment, becoming a source of information. In the end, I think that the doctor-patient relationship is altered by this phenomenon, and we should learn about it. I, I think you're completely right, and probably I don't spend enough time learning about where my patients get their information from. Uh, when we look at some of the older publications before the age of social media, even the data in support or against traditional practices like having a preoperative consultation, whether or not that truly serves as a good educational measure, uh, the data on those sort of practices is not very strong. Now, 
here specifically, uh, as you'll discuss with us, you looked at the quality of the YouTube videos and the um, sentiment of the comments associated with them. So for the readers and listeners who have not yet read your study, could you just summarize the uh, study that you conducted with your co-authors for us, please? Well, in, in our study, we try to investigate the information that appears in YouTube video about most surgery, analyzing their quality and the comments received as well. We use instruments to ensure the objectivity of our results to avoid including our personal opinions, like the discern tool to analyze quality and the sensory strength application for sentiment analysis. The results showed that the average quality of YouTube videos is poor. The main problem was the lack of information about the sources of data used. Different possibilities of treatment were missing as well. We classified the videos depending on the procedures. This producer of the on the producers. These producers were mainly healthcare professionals. There were also patient testimonials, new broadcasts and the 10% of videos were conducted by healthcare associations. The overall quality was higher in videos produced by these healthcare associations. We think that a greater investment should be done in this area to improve the quality. Moreover, it seems that in the end, we can rely on the info released by healthcare associations as a source of information. On the other hand, the sentiment analysis of the comments by the users was, was positive what I think reinforces uh, a constructive feedback among the online community. From a formal point of view, maybe the videos are not optimal, but they produce a positive effect on general population. Do you, were you surprised by these findings? Were you surprised by the distribution in terms of how many of the videos were made by patients versus by healthcare practitioners? And then secondly, were you surprised by the overall quality of the videos seen in your analysis? Well, I can say that uh, we didn't have high expectations about the quality of the videos. So I think it's low quality wasn't a big surprise. On the other hand, we were not sure about what uh, we would find in the sentiment analysis and the results were globally positive. I can say we were not so disappointed in the end, but we think there is much to be done. Mm -hmm. um, I guess we should um, get a little bit more specific. In your introduction, you mentioned that one of your co-authors has expertise in artificial intelligence. And now you're mentioning um, that your methods included a sentiment analysis. I imagine that uh, many listeners, uh, just like myself prior to preparing for this podcast, are not familiar with a sentiment analysis. And um, I think that's actually a shame. I think it's something that physicians should be very familiar with. So could you spend a little bit of time explaining what a sentiment analysis is? Yes, and... Part of the research was devoted to the evaluation of the comments on the YouTube videos. Uh, 
this was uh, quite difficult uh, to do on, on our own, based on our own opinions. So our first author, Alvaro Iglesias, chose the sensuous strength analysis tool. The, this uh, allowed us to classify these comments. This is an automated program that measures the positive and negative sentiment in English text. The, there is an algorithm, uh, lexicon driving, that gives a punctuation based on the presence of uh, specific words on a scale from plus five to minus five. This has been extensively applied in research projects on social networks. And we think it's very interesting to, to achieve an objective uh, view of the, of the proposals. Fascinating. So essentially you um, have a, a tool or a process of detecting a positive or negative sentiment in text. In this case, the text is the, the comments associated with one of these most surgery-related YouTube videos. And then a machine learning algorithm can decide based on a uh, vocabulary from a, a dictionary or a lexicon whether these are positive or negative sentiments associated with the comment. Is that correct? Yeah, the, the algorithm just uh, analyzes the, the words uh, in the sentence you introduce in the program and in this, uh, in this algorithm gives you a, a final punctuation of this, uh, of this sentence. So it has been tested and it uh, seems to be seems to be quite objective and equal to uh, an independent observer opinion for example there is a psychological psychological background on the development of this tool but uh, uh, just the the, easy, the easiest way to apply it is to introduce the sentence and basing based on the words you can receive a punctuation okay and for your study in particular, I, I think we briefly touched on it, but can you tell us how, how were the sentiment scores for the comments? I believe you said they were mostly positive comments. Is that correct? Were there also negative comments? Yeah, there were also negative comments, but was uh, uh, the main part uh, were positive comments in the sentiment analysis. So it seems uh, that uh, the final result of the videos is they impact in a positive uh, in a positive manner in the people who, who watch the videos. So it's not so bad. Fascinating. And I think the the sentiment analysis really plays a role for for us in, in so many ways. Um, if you are at an academic institution like myself. All of our patients receive a phone call uh, the day after surgery from an automated computer system where they are asked to evaluate me. And so even after only three years at my current university, there's, you know, over 400 comments uh, regarding my performance and, and stars and more and more were being rated and evaluated online. And I think for physicians, uh, to want to have a understanding of their online presence and 
potentially in the future when when we're measured and evaluated based on these sort of comments more, it's a very important tool to have in our system so that we can somehow go from something as subjective and nonspecific as patient comments from a single observation to something that's more robust and actually based on numbers like positive and negative counts. So I, I think this is a very worthwhile um, tool. When I reviewed some of the other papers looking at social media and the quality of media publications related to dermatology and most surgery, another instrument that was repeatedly mentioned was the discern tool. And you use this in your project as well. And so um, I don't think we have to go into too much detail, but what exactly was the purpose of that second instrument? Yeah, the, the discern instrument uh, has been designed years ago to assess written information about treatments. Uh, more specifically, treatment choices for health conditions. Uh, it consists, uh, consists of 15 questions and a global quality item that allow us to rate the quality of healthcare publications in a systematic way. The different items analyzed are referred to reliability of the information, the sources of information used, potential biases, risks and benefits of treatments, etc. This is the first standardized index of quality of consumer health information. We applied this tool to the YouTube most videos and we obtained a rating that was categorized by the, by, by the authors to, to achieve the final results of our study. The, the discern instrument uh, is widely used, uh, as you can see in the literature, and, and is an objective manner, uh, once again, to, to check the, the publications about uh, healthcare treatments. It seems to me that um, we as scientists and researchers are actually missing a good tool to evaluate the quality of videos. I think the sentiment analysis certainly works for the um, comments and the text underneath the video, but the uh, discern instrument, I think, is largely based and validated on written text and some of the other instruments like the JAMA instrument is largely used to assess text on websites. We don't really have a good way to assess the quality of videos or images, it seems, even though those are far more educational for many people and they're far more likely to um, stimulate our emotions, either in terms of fear of a surgery or um, panic about a, a scar, but also, you know, alleviation and, and cure of cancer. Do you agree that we don't have a great way to really assess the quality beyond what you have done in your study and that ideally we would have a tool that's more designed for the modern social media platforms? Yeah, I, I agree completely with you. Uh, I think the problem is uh, where to where we put the the point because uh, if we are patient oriented or patient centered, 
maybe the sentiment analysis is more important, but uh, we shouldn't uh, forget the quality and we should uh, measure the quality of the publications also. So uh, it's, it's quite difficult to, to find the perfect instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess apart from the perfect instrument, with what you know, what would make a more perfect YouTube video? What do you think are, um, forgetting what, what the patients necessarily want, because I think sometimes patients are not the best judges of the quality of a video. They're also not the most skilled at really assessing the accuracy of a video. And certainly most surgery isn't as prone or um, as much victim to um, to, to videos as, let's say, um, global warming or politics. But certainly one always has to consider who the author of such a um, social media post or YouTube video is. So do you have any thoughts on how to generally improve the quality of a social media post, especially a YouTube post that a physician or other healthcare provider may be publishing? I think uh, there should be different categories. I think the, the, the videos are very different if we, if they are, uh, if they are produced in a in an educational uh, objective dedicated mm-hmm. to to patients, uh, but maybe if we want to produce a video for doctors, for example, uh, is very different. So the the maybe the problem is who is receiving the message. I think uh, we should uh, differentiate. Uh, if uh, the video is for patients, for general population, or for skilled doctors. Mm. I I think that is certainly a part of it. I think uh, it can be very helpful to just be very um, explicit in terms of who the desired audience is. I I think um, specifically having an introductory segment or texts that identifies a video for healthcare professionals or as an educational video for patients would be a big step forward because right now it's my impression that a lot of the videos are simply clicked because they show the largest uh, surgical defect or the most complex reconstruction. Um, I know that Google Images was not the focus of your publication, but I have found on many occasions that when I Google Mohs surgery nose, for example, under Google Images, the proportion of patients shown there with something complicated like a forehead flap or other two-stage surgeries is far out of proportion to how often that type of reconstruction is actually encountered in clinical practice, simply because Google algorithms have identified larger defects and larger reconstructions to be more likely to prompt users to open the, the website or click on the image. Is that is that something that you've noted as well? 
Yeah, yeah. I think uh, this is a problem similar to the clickbait in the newspapers. You know, the, the most impressive uh, image, the 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 most visits or the most uh, clicks uh, you achieve. So uh, sometimes it's not the quality or the the accuracy of the image or the video what drives the final results or the final impact of the video. I want to spend just a couple of minutes. There are a few other related um, publications. Um, one that actually came out almost in parallel to yours in the uh, Dermatologic Surgery Journal, also looking at YouTube um, and conducting a um, analysis using the discern tool as well as the JAMA tool. And um, for our readers, that too, I'm sorry, for our listeners, I'm reading the um, article here as I'm speaking with you. For our listeners, that article is also still um, available only online, but it's from our colleagues uh, at the University of Ottawa, and it has very similar findings in that the quality of, of a lot of YouTube videos is not very high. If you look at content produced by dermatologists or non-dermatologists, the content is usually higher when it's posted or created by a dermatologist. And so I think your study and this very similar study nicely address the question of YouTube. I wonder if you have any questions or, th or, or thoughts on the use of Instagram or Twitter, or if you're aware of any publications in the literature that may have studied those social media tools. Yeah, the, it was very, very funny to find the, this publication you, you have talked about in Dramaturgic Surgery because it's quite similar to our to our article. Uh, apart from that, uh, I've uh, I've uh, uh, read uh, some publications. There is a, an article published in Archives of Dermatological Research analyzing patients' experiences with most surgery, posted on Instagram and Twitter. Mm -hmm. yeah, the content shared by okay. healthcare organizations or practitioners were excluded. So the just well, the study was just related to patients' personal experiences. It's not uh, they are not evaluating the quality or something like that. Just uh, patients' personal experiences, and the results are interesting because they found a ninety percent of posts on Instagram were produced by women. Huh. There were only twenty tweets included, but uh, sixty-five percent were written by women as well, and this would show. Uh, female predominance in the use of social media that we should keep in mind. I think is one of the interesting points of this of this paper. Looking at the content published on these social networks, the authors found uh, concerns of one bound appearance and scarring. What's not surprising when we talk about dermatologic surgery, but they found a lot of content about awareness of skin cancer and encouraging people. Uh, about uh, some protecting as well. So maybe this is an interesting point about educational functions of these uh, social networks. 
I think this is a, a good paper. I, I was just going to say, I think that is a very interesting observation because indeed it, it seems to depend in social media posts like Instagram and Twitter whether one is focused on the self or focused on others. If one is predominantly focused on self, then I it seems the Instagram or the tweet is dealing mostly with the um, nature of the post-operative recovery, the nature of the scar, the extent of the necessary reconstruction versus focus on others uses the surgery as an educational opportunity to encourage followers, friends, family, whomever to um, perform adequate sun protection. And perhaps they're just different phases of processing a experience like Mohs surgery. And it has to do with whether you're posting it as you were being driven home from your Mohs surgery or whether you're posting it a month after your recovery. I don't know, but I think it is interesting that it can really be be two completely different um, ways that the experience can be shared with the the social media community. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting the the difference, but in the end uh, we can we can extract a positive conclusion because uh, it's a way to to reinforce of uh, messages to people about uh, sun protecting and taking care of uh, of skin. So it's, it's good. One of the things that I think is more established in plastic surgery and in cosmetic surgeries is the website realself.com. Um, I know occasionally when um, my wife, who's a plastic surgeon, um, discusses patients or discusses procedures, there's reference to realself.com. Um, I believe on realself.com, patients can report the type of surgery they had and then answer some standardized questions about the physician, about the procedure, about the recovery, and about the cost. Um, I don't know how prevalent that website is in Europe. I don't know if there are any studies on that website. Uh, are you at all familiar with the, the website and whether or not that's something that's being used in dermatology? Yeah, um, I know the website, I think, is not so so famous in Europe mainly in the UK because the uh, English uh, English language okay but not in Europe but uh, we were looking for information when we performed the the study of YouTube so we we were <laughs> introduced to realself.com and I think it's, it's very interesting for doctors because uh, this is a web page uh, patient oriented and we can find uh, a valuable feedback about the medical procedures. We can increase our knowledge about what's more important for patients. Uh, maybe uh, extracting information from these platforms will improve our doctor-patient relationship. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I have doubts about the, the way these platforms uh, should ensure their independence because uh, the risk of biases, I think, is high. Maybe the influence of paid advertising and the possibility of malicious opinions can can have a, a bad influence in the final 
results of these web pages. But I think in the end, it's interesting to extract information for us in our daily practice. Uh, there is a, a paper, uh, uh, an article uh, published in Qtis about the, the web page realself.com, and they found a high overall, overall satisfaction with uh, most surgery. It was considered worth it uh, for the most of patients. And the study reflected that the interpersonal skills of surgeons were very appreciated by the patients. So, uh, so maybe the interaction between the patient and the surgeon is uh, very close because uh, the intervention is often performed under local anesthesia. So it uh, would be an interesting issue. In my opinion, in this paper, uh, we can be reflected that the bedside manner and the perceived expertise are more important for the patient than the technical issues of uh, most surgeries. So we should imply more in, in transmitting our, our skills to the patient when we are performing the, the intervention. That, that's quite interesting. And I, actually with the the beauty of computers, I'm opening this article as we're having this conversation. And um, they do mention that um, the specific nature of Mohs surgery as a tissue sparing technique was only cited by 14% of the reviewers. And I think that's what you were just mentioning, that um, the bedside manner and the confidence or the perceived expertise of the surgeon ends up being far more important to many patients' experiences than the actual technical aspects of the surgery. But I do wonder if in our consent process and in our educational material, we need to do more to emphasize the tissue-sparing nature of our procedure and the high cure rate, which is ultimately what really sets us apart from other specialties treating skin cancers yes maybe when we when we produce some educational material and things like that we should reinforce these uh, technical messages uh, the problem i think is uh, when when the patient is uh, sitting in front of you this technical issue sometimes are in a second place and the, and the patient leaves your, your office just thinking about the, the manners of the, of the doctor or, or the, what they perceive in a subjective way more than the, the technical issues of the technique. Mm-hmm. Well, I, Alberto, I think this has been uh, quite an uh, interesting conversation. I guess my final question for you in closing is, are you currently using any social media platforms to communicate with your patients or do you have plans to do so in the future? Well, I think that's a pending task in my daily practice. One reason maybe is uh, I haven't found reliable sources in Spanish for our patients. Maybe in English, the, some interesting videos can be found 
for example, I think the one on the web page of the American College of Surgery is quite accurate. Uh, so in my daily practice, I, I don't use the, this kind of material. I think in the future, we have to do it and we, we should uh, reinforce this part uh, of the work because uh, it's necessary to clarify the message and to, to make a, a good explanation of what we are doing and, and what's uh, most surgery. Well, Alberto, thank you again so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I'm uh, so grateful for the marvels of technology in the 21st century that we can have this conversation across an Atlantic Ocean and have uh, have this recording. Um, to all of our listeners, I want to thank you for your attention. If you're using one of the major podcasting platforms, please make sure to hit subscribe so that you're the first to be notified of upcoming episodes. To all of our listeners, please share this podcast with your colleagues and trainees. Uh, we've now got uh, close to 30 episodes published. Let us know how we are doing and who you'd like to have on the show by contacting info at Thank you, and I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Mohs Surgery.